I'm back to wearing a mask. So exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I might cough. That's the main thing that happens with a cold with me. I, I have this horrible hacking cough, which you may get to experience. So today, um, I'm, I'd like to talk about, can you hear me back there? Not so well. Today, um, well, first, I'd like to welcome Andrew, visiting us from Florida. Everybody say hi to Andrew. Andrew, Andrew, of course, is a longtime board member, and he lives very close to his brother, Jeff, now in Florida. So we're very happy to have you back. Thank you. Yeah. We've got other travelers from far away. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Very nice. And other travelers from far away. <laughs> so nice to see you all. Um, today I want to talk about the a very important Mahayana teaching about the paths of enlightenment, five paths. And the reason I want to talk about it is partly because we're soon going to be having a retreat with Tension Roshi, next week we'll have a five-day intensive retreat out there at our land. And partly because um, on Friday morning, I woke up and I was having a dream. And in the dream, I, I woke up thinking about the first path, this first of the paths, and I, I had a thought about it. So it's a very rich teaching that I want to share with you. In the uh, Mahayana, Mahayana means the big vehicle. So in Buddhism, um, when the Buddhist practice sort of turned back toward embracing everybody instead of just focusing on really um, intense monastic practice, when it turned back toward uh, really manifesting that everybody can do this practice and everybody kind of should do this practice, but everybody can do this practice, then the word for those teachings is the big vehicle, Mahayana. And Suzuki Roshi used to say, it's like a big taxi. Everybody can get in. So that's a very big taxi. So the Mahayana teachings are meant to be accessible for all of us and to help us along the path. Um, So this is a classic Mahayana teaching, and it will sound a little unlike Zen, but it's underneath Zen. So these teachings are definitely part of our Zen practice. So it's called the five paths, five margas, the path of accumulation or preparation, the path of joining, the path of seeing, the path of meditation, and the path of no more learning. And when I woke up on Friday, that first path, the path of accumulation or preparation, I was lying there because I usually sleep lying down. (laughs) (laughs) I was lying there and I kind of had these thoughts of all the things that I should do that day as I woke up. And I, like I think most of you, I live in several realms, several realms of responsibility. There's family responsibility, there's Zen Center responsibility, there's Institute 
responsibilities. There's Japan responsibilities. I live in several realms. Do, do you guys live in several realms? Yeah. And sometimes they cooperate and sometimes they kind of clash. And all of a sudden you realize several of them are together and you have to take care of them all at one time. Isn't that fun? <laughs> well, I was lying there thinking. Several of my realms have to be dealt with in, you know, 10 minutes. And then the path of accumulation came to me because the path of accumulation is to gather the resources that we need for the path. And I realized, and one of the main ways of gathering those resources is to practice the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of uh, 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 feelings, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of mind objects. So I was right there with mindfulness of body. And I thought, this body needs a little more rest. So to understand in that context that in order to take care of the many things I needed to take care of, I needed to go back to sleep. It was so cool. <laughs> so it became part of my practice, actually, in order to do what I wanted to do, a little more rest was needed. And these practice, these five paths are, again, a very rich um, resource for us. So the path of accumulation, again, is to accumulate, to gather what we need for our spiritual practice. And mind, those four foundations of mindfulness are the first part. We're gathering the resources that we need to investigate the mind, actually. So next week, we'll be hearing some very um, important teachings. And this, the way we've uh, gathered our practice together will make it possible for us to understand those teachings or to benefit from them. So the second marga is uh, joining. And joining means it kind of, it's right there between accumulating and seeing. Joining means we're getting close to seeing, seeing things as they really are. So joining means um, you're, we're a little bit further along. And one of the qualities of the path of joining is you feel some warmth about practice. There's some warmth that we're getting close to seeing things as they are. So there are a lot of teachings in the joining path and a lot of practices. Oh, I thought I had a whole bunch of cough drops. Does anybody have a cough drop? Oh, thank you. Oh, my favorite kind. <laughs> Original Ricola. <laughs> Square. So cute. Actually, a cube, a cube of a cough drop. So then we join with our practice. We have some a basis for understanding. And then what happens in the path of seeing? The path of seeing is that with all these preparations and uh, relinquishment of... Um, sorry, this is too much. It's hard to talk with a giant cube in your mouth. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. Sorry, Zoom world. <clears throat> the path of seeing is that we actually get a glimpse 
of how things actually are. We get a glimpse of, it's finally been, um, some of our views about how things are have been relaxed in the path of joining. Some of our views about uh, dualistic thinking, it's like this, how I see things, and it's like that, how I see things, and I'm right. That relaxes in the path of joining. It's more about what is it that I see? So in the path of seeing, we've been pre preparing and we see you get in that path, you get a direct perception of emptiness. <coughs> you get a, we get a direct perception of how things actually exist. In order to um, see things as they really are, we have to recognize our own um, imputation, the way we keep labeling things. So the path of preparation and the path of joining both involve a lot of us admitting how we label things. I, we label things with names. We label things with qualities. We label ourselves with names. We label ourselves with qualities. And it's not that we try to um, discard that. We just, first, we just admit it. I'm just naming reality. This is what I think is happening. Look at how I have created my world. And the realms, all of our realms, all of our worlds are responsibilities. But in the path of seeing, we, we see um, they are released from our views. To see things as they really are um, is to see that simultaneously with all the little things that we see and label, ultimate reality is flowing through all of these things. So next week, we'll hear a lot about this because the realm where our labels and the way things actually are come together is the realm of what we call suchness. This is suchness. The way things really are and the way we label them and the way they move together is the path of seeing. In some, some worlds, one of the things that is really interesting to me is that... Um, it kind of sounds like once we've seen that things are, we call it empty, but it, empty means they are, um, uh, they don't exist just solidly all by themselves. They're, they're the product of dependent co-arising. They're the product of many things come together to make them. They're not just a solid separate entity. And all of our relationships, all of our situations in the world are also the result of many causes coming together. So to be able to see causation is part of what the path of seeing is about. We see that many, many, many factors have brought this situation into being. Sometimes when we get a glimpse of that, there's a temptation, and this is true in, in a lot of uh, Buddhist situations, it's like, Oh, well, then that's what I should stay with. I should stay with just seeing emptiness. Everything has, none of this uh, uh, particularity has, has any value because it's empty. None of this particularity, it's all fake. None of this particularity really counts. So there's a tendency to lean a little bit over into, well, it's all it's all just empty, empty of own being. What's the problem? 
But in the Mahayana, the fact that those two worlds come together means that both are incredibly valuable. Both the world of emptiness and uh, the magnificence of ultimate reality and the magnificence of the particularity are important. So once we've seen through in the path of seeing, once we've seen through this world that we're creating by our own imagination, like I imagine this motive for that person and that motive for that person. And recently I was in New York and uh, visiting my granddaughter, Rosie, and I love her so much. She's a really, really good person. She's 22. And she was, we went to some dance performances because dance is really important to her. And um, we were talking about her dance classes. Now she, she, she performs a bit with some girls, but she's mostly a student. So she's very seriously studying and so on. But she was talking about her dance classes and her teacher for all those years from the age of three to the age of when she graduated from high school. Um, Bella was her teacher. And I met her, actually. I met Bella. Bella was a very serious dancer. And she really helped these girls, young girls, explore their dance ability. And some of, a couple of them became professionals, but most go back to school. And dance is just one of the many realms of their lives. And Rosie said, um, uh, Bella hated me. Mm-hmm. And I just decided, as I often do with my beloved friends and family, Not to tell her she was wrong, because that doesn't usually work with people. (laughs) You're totally wrong about that. Um, But I said, wow, Bella always praised you to me. She said you were, she she praised you. She said, no, she hated me. And I I stood there, and or I, I think we were walking somewhere. I thought, in her world... The fact that Bella hated her is is a big piece right now. It's a piece. And I I felt I didn't want to take it apart with her at that moment. Like, what's your evidence? (laughs) 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 With you guys, I would do that. (laughs) What's your evidence? But I could tell that at this moment in her life, um, that's a belief. And it's going to stay there for a while. So I I held it, and I'm going to chip away at it later on. But right now, it's important for her to think Bella hated me. I don't know what's really underneath it. Maybe it's that I could speculate that it is that maybe Rosie Rosie really wasn't, like, putting her whole life energy into those dance classes, and, and Bella recognized that. So maybe Bella prodded her a little bit. But Bella, Bella liked Rosie. I saw that. But there are times when you, um, when we, um, we just hold the belief system that somebody is presenting to us. We just kind of hold it. Look at this that has arisen in this mind object. And right now I thought it's not doing her any harm. So, but I didn't agree with it. Didn't go that far. I just said, huh, Bella liked you. No, she hated me. Let it drop. Later on, we'll bring it up again. It'll probably take years to, to make that one go away. Although often what happens with my friends in the Dharma world, next time I see her, she might say, I just loved working with Bella. She was so nice to me. And I also will let that drop. 
I never say, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> so the path of joining, so we have accumulation, joining, seeing, meditation, and then no more learning. The path of joining is where we gather, to, we, there is a connection between the path of accumulation and the path of seeing. And they kind, they're getting close. And they can go back and forth. And it isn't a kind of path where you leave one and then you're, you never go back there. Because obviously, I woke up in the path of accumulation on Friday. And I was very happy to be there because they become richer as you go back to them. The next path of meditation, isn't that funny that the path of meditation is up there? You would think the path of meditation would be down at the bottom. Yeah. But the path of meditation is up at number four. That's when meditation really starts to cook. Of course, we're doing sitting meditation, but the path of meditation really starts to cook after we've seen something about the nature of reality. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So meditation for all of us is really hard when we're just sitting there. Why am I sitting here? Oh, yeah, they still, now I'm relaxed for a second. Now I'm not relaxed. Isn't it hard? It is hard. <laughs> but the path of meditation in this system of the Mahayana teachings is that this is where, after seeing, getting a taste that things aren't what they appear to the ordinary mind, that's when we practice, guess what? The Eightfold Noble Path. So the Eightfold Noble Path, if you haven't heard of it, is the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha's great teaching about how to liberate ourselves from suffering. And again, it sounds like, well, that's the basic path. It's actually the most advanced path. So Eightfold Noble Path is right view. What's the next one, Tim? Right intention, yes. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And they're wonderful things to practice from a dualistic mind, like right view. You study your view, right uh, speech. Very important practice. But in this Mahayana system, we actually refine our understanding of how things really are in terms of action and speech, livelihood. Oh, I was going to print out the kinds of livelihood, the kinds of wrong livelihood. You would be surprised. The kinds of wrong livelihood are basically hypocrisy, duplicity, um, exploitation. It doesn't say you can't do this and that. It's don't do it hypocritically. Don't do it exploitatively. Don't do it in order to... Uh, abuse others, and so on. There are five. Also in this path of meditation, there are um, a nice list of 414 things we need to give up at the path of meditation. <laughs> it's a typical Mahayana list, though, because it'll say you have to give up these six um, corrosive feelings, 
And since they appear in the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm, that's three times. So that's three times six, that's 18. So somehow or other, they end up at 414. But I, there, was, there was one a set that I really liked um, about arrogance. Let's see if I printed it. I might have, because the Mahayana, these teachings will always surprise you. Just when you think you've got it, it will surprise you. I did. Good, good, good. I just frolic in these teachings. Seven kinds of arrogance that we have to give up, or we get to give up, let's say. We get to give up. Simple arrogance of thinking that you are the same as your peers. <laughs> Greater arrogance thinking that you are better than your equals. Exceeding arrogance, thinking you are even better than those who are great. <laughs> Here's another one. The arrogance of thinking, I exist. <laughs> Blatant arrogance, thinking you have greater qualities than you actually possess. <laughs> Number six, the arrogance of thinking that you are slightly inferior, i.e. thinking you are slightly inferior to those who are great, but that you are excellent nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> Seven, unfounded arrogance, taking pride in what is actually a fault. So isn't that good? It's so interesting. The psychology of these ancient teachings is really interesting. interesting. So the path of meditation is when finally the teachings of the Eightfold Path really cook. So at the beginning, when we're first learning about Buddhist practice and we practice the right view, right intention, right speech right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We practice them dualistically, which is fine. It's to improve. It's to get clear. It's to understand more. It's great. But then after a while, after you've seen something about the nature of reality, then we practice each one of those in order to enhance our understanding of reality. So with, say, for instance, practicing right view, often view deviates from seeing things as they really are. But once you have a taste of how things really are, then there's a reminder, oh yeah, I'm not seeing things as they really are. Or right speech. Is my speech helpful? Is at the basic level. But does my speech come from the way things really are? And does it enhance other people's understanding of the way things are? And then... Again, we have those 414 different views, <laughs> basically views, incorrect ways of seeing things that we get to slowly chip away at. There's nothing to say about the fifth path, the path of no more learning, because that's only Buddhists get there. So the path of meditation. Oh, I forgot one more thing. In the path of joining, there's a feeling of warmth. The feeling of warmth um, <coughs> arises when I don't know you don't have to necessarily be aware of it but the feeling of warmth is about 
you're going to get a vision of how things really are pretty soon. Maybe even the next lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a feeling of great warmth. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> there's a feeling of great, great warmth when you're going to get a, a, a vision of how things really are in this lifetime. Isn't that great? So somehow or other, Zen is actually expressing the confidence that we already have all these tools. We already can see things as they really are. And when we sit down facing the wall or facing whichever direction we're facing, we're sitting down in the midst of that seeing things as they really are. Another reason why Zen is so revolutionary is that. So one more thing I want to talk about is um, in two months, is it two months? A month and a half, several of us will be going to Japan in honor of Keizan Zenji. In most Soto Zen temples in the U.S. I can take this off. I'm far away from you guys. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Ben, is that right? I'm far enough away? Thank you. He's an epidemiologist. We can rely on his opinion. Of course, he's sitting way back there. So. <laughs> so, in line with what we've just been talking about, now you'll have a better I think, a little more evidence about why Kazan is so important. Dogen Zenji, Dogen Zenji is the founder of Soto Zen in Japan. Very important, incredible genius writer about uh, Zen and about all these things we've just been talking about. Incredible. And a lot of us have, have um, read his poetic writings. They're very beautiful, very difficult. They're talking a lot about this intersection of the ultimate and conventional reality. However, he kept going further and further into the mountains in Japan to concentrate on this teaching and to invite people to come and study these very difficult teachings and to sit in meditation. He welcomed a lot of people. If that had been the case, Zen, Soto Zen, would still be in the mountains of Japan. With there, were, If any of us wanted to study the way we're sitting here now, we would have to go to Japan. But two generations after Dogen Zenji died, there was a big split. It was called the third generation split in, at Aheji. And his Dharma grandsons had a disagreement about how to take care of these precious teachings. And so one of them stayed to take care of Aheji, and one of them was kicked out. And that was Tetsu Gikai, who with Keizan Zenji moved to another small temple. And Kazan, um, he also was guided a lot by dreams. It's partly because of Kazan that we have a lot of the practices that we do. Also, Kazan had a lot of women disciples, partly because of Dogen had women disciples too, but it's a lot because of Kazan that there are a lot of women who are welcome to practice all together in Zen. And then Kazan had another student. Had he had, is it okay if I tell you this? Yes, because it really does explain why we're able to do what we do right now. Um, 
Kazan had a had eight disciples, major disciples, two women, and he set them up in a monastery. The first women's monastery was established by Kazan. And the other six he sent to various places around Japan. So he sent his most able disciple to a big temple further away. And then his next, he, he ranked them in terms of their abilities. You're the most, you're the most um, <laughs> important. You go to this place and take over and expound the teachings. And then each of them was tasked, because Kazan really believed in this. Kazan had a lot of experience in local um, deities and things like that. Each was tasked with um, honor the local traditions and, and uh, incorporate them in your practice. If you go to Texas, honor their local traditions. <laughs> yeah, Bucky's. Yes. <laughs> yes, at, uh, at, at the office of the International Center, they have Bucky's cup holders. <laughs> And they showed me pictures. They said, see Texas. <laughs> and he sent the other five uh, to various temples. But the last one was Gasan, his least promising disciple. And <laughs> he sent him just north, not very far away from him, to, he said, it's just a prayer temple, meaning the people don't have much faith, just this little temple. Gasan. <laughs> Gasan is our link to Dogen Zenji because Gasan then had a lot of disciples <coughs> and he sent them all over. Isn't that amazing? And because of circumstances, like it was a difficult time in Japan, warfare, social upheaval, catastrophes, all sorts of things. But somehow or other, the temples that Gasan sent his disciples to survive. And because of that form of outreach and that form of collaboration with the local uh, communities, that's what made Suzuki Roshi come to the United States. And that's what eventually has made his form of Zen come to Houston and Chapel Hill, North Carolina and various places. Isn't that interesting? So even though, pitiful, just, <laughs> even though here in, in North America, we basically just honor Dogen, we couldn't honor Dogen unless Kazan had done his job. Isn't that amazing? So. Maybe he didn't rank them as ably as he thought. He's. Elizabeth says maybe he, he, he didn't rank them as ably as he thought. <laughs> yeah, most rankings are completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to stop right now. So. <laughs> anyway, so nice to see you, and I hope this has been helpful. hope it encourages your practice.